This is Recognize, a podcast about the NHL's black and biracial hockey heroes, proudly supported by eBay Canada. Ever since I was a kid, I collected hockey cards with spare change my dad gave me. As a black person, to see others like me on the ice inspired me. They were my role models and showed me hockey is a game for everyone. I've collected 100 rookie cards for NHL's black and biracial players, and I'm going to talk to all of them so you can learn their stories. Uh, here we got the fight, Brown and Stewart, the two number 13s. Stewart with the lefts and Brown with the rights. Anthony Stewart was born in LaSalle, Quebec in 1985. He played six seasons in the NHL for the Florida Panthers, Atlanta Thrashers, and Carolina Hurricanes. His rookie card is from 2005. A fresh-faced Anthony is in the white, red, and gold of the Panthers. His face is fixed in concentration, as though he's fully in the moment. Let's meet the man from the card. So to start the conversation off, uh, Anthony, can you tell us what comes to mind when you see this rookie card? Hopefully you recognize it. I know it's a bit foggy there, but it's... uh, with you in Florida. So what comes to mind when you were with the Atlanta Thrashers, I believe in 2002? Well, that's uh, that was actually right after my draft year with the Florida Panthers. And uh, that actually was a very, very hot day. I think it was the day after my first day of rookie camp. And they wanted to start a new uh, card series of game-worn jerseys. So technically, if you wear the jersey, it's considered game-worn. So Uh, my face in that picture looks a little bit annoyed because I had to try on probably about 15 jerseys because what they do is they cut it up and uh, into little pieces and they put it uh, into cards to make it a little bit more valuable. So I'm not sure how valuable it is now, but uh, I have probably about five different versions of that. But uh, that was when I was 18 years old. So I remember that night, uh, that day, Uh, it was a long day, a lot of photos and my face looks like, hey, just get this photo shoot over with. I had enough, but uh, fond memories for sure. Well, that's great that you remember it. And uh so did you ever collect cards as a young person? And um, do you remember if uh, if you had other cards? Um, you, you mentioned you, there might be other cards of this one, but tell us about your card collecting experiences as a kid. Yeah, I had a big card collection and uh, we actually itemized them and had them in plastic growing up too. So I collected that and, uh, and Pog. So I was uh, the generation of Pog where I actually had NHL Pogs and um, you know, you had the slammers, but then it was considered gambling and they took them all away. But uh, again, I was the player that uh, young kid that had the Matt Sundin and the uh, Myra Lemieux card and you trade with kids that uh, practice when you were young. So it's, it's it's funny. It's almost like a lost art now where, um, you know, taking care of stuff that's very, very valuable. So it, it was great. It was great. I had I don't think I had a Wayne Gretzky Wayne, uh, rookie card, but uh, I think the most valuable one was maybe a, a Mario Lemieux uh rookie card or something like that so it wasn't signed and it was probably a little bit frayed on the edges so it wasn't worth nothing but uh definitely valuable to myself so have you kept any of these cards no no we moved a lot as a as a uh, as a young family and a lot of stuff got left uh, in transition so i think uh the you know it ended up in shoe boxes and then lost in a garbage bag along the way so i'm sure there were some valuable things if we took care of them just like everybody they always talk about the card that they lost or the card that got away or got uh, broken or or ruined. But uh, I'm sure I had something valuable in there for sure. Now, do you remember any fans reaching out to you to mail a card and have you sign and mail back? I know that was pretty popular at one point in time. 
Yeah, till this day, I still have some fans uh, that do that. And um, again, there's a couple of my cars that I don't have. So if they send more than uh, four, uh, I tend to maybe keep one. So that's sort of the rule. I, I, I tax the fans. <laughs> and, uh, I work at Sportsnet now. So there's every so often, there's a bunch of cards that come to uh, come to the studio. And I, and I have a little bit of an internal rule. If they send more than four cards, I, I tend to keep one. And uh, you know, I think I'm an avid collector now of... Uh, you know, a couple of my friends that have played in the National Hockey League and Wayne Simmons and Joel Ward and Devontae Smith-Pelly, Kevin Henderson, Mike Duco. And uh, I have actually a buddy of mine that runs a memorabilia store. So every so often I check in. So I think I have probably about 250 cards uh, of some of uh, my friends and uh, family that played in the NHL. Well, that's impressive. So I learned you grew up in Scarborough, um, which is a borough of Toronto. And you could provide some details. I, I know you didn't have the easiest experience growing up and and to be honest, it's really quite inspiring to me to see um, how you persevered to um, to stay focused, to make it to the NHL. And I know it's it's aligned with sort of your vision of the work that you do today. So maybe just share with us a little bit of your early uh, early uh, beginnings. Um, well, I grew up from a very very humble uh, with you know with very humble beginnings uh, in Scarborough and uh, a lot of tough neighborhoods. And um, you know, I tell everybody it's sort of. Uh, it uh, molds me into the person I am today where we didn't have a lot of money. And we talk about the expenses of hockey and, you know, we didn't have the $3 that it cost to get into the hockey arena. They used to charge you to go watch games. So, um, you know, those humble beginnings helped mold me, but uh, you know, we had the support of the community where, you know, we always had a ride to the rink. We always had a meal after the rink. So, uh, you know, we grew up in uh, the shelter systems in Scarborough where, you know, we were moving from motel to motel around the world, uh, around the city, excuse me. And again, you see some things that, nine and 10 year old kids should not see. But uh, what that did though, was motivate me now to change my surroundings and saying, Hey, this is rock bottom. Uh, only way to go from here is up. So, um, you know, it was my mission from 11, 12 years old to make the national hockey league and take my family out of those uh, situations that they were in. And there was a lot of pressure, but um, I just remember being uh, at home at night, sleeping in uh, you know, a bed with two or three of my siblings and being like, you know what, I'm going to change this. I'm going to change this. So, um, I guess, you know, it's great to say at 19 years old, I, I was, uh, signed my first NHL contracts and my first purchase was a, a family a house for my family. So, um, you know, those, those humble beginnings helped, uh, you know, uh, motivate me to become the hockey player that I was. Uh, but it also helped me teach my brother those lessons too. So he was in the same surroundings and, uh, he was in there a little bit longer than I was. And that molded him even more uh, to, to be motivated even more to, to have a great career as well. So just so our listeners know, maybe you can just tell us about the time period when you grew up with hockey. And, and again, I'm just totally amazed by your perseverance in terms of um, just having the focus to uh, not, um, not give up and stay determined to make an NHL. And, and maybe you could also touch on um, some of the people who helped you along the way in terms of uh, getting you through those years of uh, rep hockey. Yeah. Well, I played, uh, you know, I started off at seven years old uh, playing for the West Hill Golden Hawks. And then there was a gentleman that uh, owned a triple a AAA organization called Bob law. And um, you know, he, he approached my dad and said, Hey, your son has a lot of potential to, to play the game. And he's a really good player. We'd love for him to play for the North Air Canadians. And the first thing that my dad says, well, <laughs> if you want him, you can have him, but we can't afford to, to pay anything. So I remember I was paying house league at the time. I think it was two, 300 bucks and we didn't have that. So he said, at the end of the day, just trust us that he's going to be in a good environment and uh, we'll take care of the registration costs. So he went above and beyond to make sure I had a ride to the rink and 
there was another family as well, the Siemendorfs. And, uh, you know, they were the family that picked us up at the side of the road as we used to walk to the rink. We didn't have the bus fare to get to the arena. So uh, when I talk about the community support, we really, really had that. But uh, Bob Law had that uh, initial interaction with the family and, and, and bringing me to rep hockey and really realizing my potential. And he passed away, I think, four years into my rep career. Uh, and again, I owe a lot of my, uh, you know, success to him because, um, he could have easily said, you know what, this family's too much of a hassle. I don't really want to be driving into these neighborhoods to be picking him up. Uh, but they really went above the, uh, above and beyond. And what's great about it was these families weren't necessarily wealthy by any sense of the word. They, uh, were church people. Uh, they earned a really, really, uh, decent living, uh, uh, but they gave what they could. So that was a great uh, motivator for me to say, hey, here's a family that didn't have to do it. They didn't, we weren't uh, necessarily rich by any sense of the word and they decided to help me. So that's my calling now, my second calling to sort of replicate uh, what those families did for myself and my family when I was younger. Yeah, and just shows the power of just uh, other people hearing about these stories and what they can do to open up doors for for kids that had a similar experience that uh, that you have. Um, I also want to touch on maybe if you could talk about the first, your first memories skating, how do you learn to skate and who supported you? Do you remember those, those moments? Yeah, I think the first time I actually have a picture of myself skating, I think when I was three years old and I don't remember it, but my mom was on the ice with me and she actually fell and broke her kneecap. So that was my first experience of skating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but my first, um, I think, house league game, and my dad was an immigrant from Jamaica, and, you know, he was a big Montreal Canadiens fan, and when he first came to Canada and watched, uh, you know, the Bob Gainies and the Guy Lafleurs, a lot of those players weren't wearing helmets, let alone face shields, so my first practice, or I think it was even a game, I'm skating around, he puts me out there. I'm not wearing a cage on my helmet. <laughs> so here I am, five years old on the ice, and they're like, sir, your son needs a cage, and he's like, well... We don't have a cage. He's like, well, you're going to have to go buy one. He's like, well, we can't afford one. So I think it took about two, three weeks before we paid the 30 bucks oh, yeah. to get a cage and get back. So I remember skating around with the wind on my face. And I think that memory actually urged me not to wear a visor in the NHL. But yeah. uh, that's a, a memory that I remember at five years old, for sure. Let's talk a little bit more about your your dad's experience in Montreal, too, because I did hear about his um, sort of assessment and, and uh uh, valuing the, the two-way player and that kind of stuck with you as well throughout your life. So maybe we'll yes, elaborate. Absolutely. Yeah. My dad was the loud guy in the rink, but he was yelling at for me to, to skate, uh, to have tenacity and play good defense. It wasn't ever about the goals. He'd always stand in the defensive zone and he'd, he'd follow the play, but he'd always be yelling at me to back check and puck pressure. So to this day, I always hear puck pressure, puck pressure, puck pressure. So that's how I try to teach the kids these days because you know, he talks about the Bob Gainies and the Gila Fleurs and the Larry Robinsons. And, you know, a lot of those guys that he mentions that won those cups, uh, they weren't superstars putting up 100 points, but just the work ethic. And I think what he remembers of that is just how beloved they were by the city of Montreal. And they were superstars because of the passion that they brought uh, for the city and uh, for the, the Habitants. So it, it was great to see that. And, um, you know, him at the rink talking about these players and, you know, my friends are talking about, you know, Eric Lindros and John LeClaire and Mario Lemieux, where I'm getting molded to play like Bob Gainey. <laughs> and, uh, 
and, and players like Jacques Lemaire. So it uh, it molded me to this day. And, um, you know, you're talking about teams that win the Stanley Cups. They have a Jacques Lemaire and a Larry Robinson and a Bob Gainey and obviously a, a Guy Lafleur, who's a superstar as well, too. So it's uh, it's great memories and uh, one that I definitely cherish for sure. So he was ahead of his time because that's one of the first things pros get taught to be better defensive players, the two-way players. It sounded like you sort of had that skill from early age. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um, were you good at this sport at day one? Like, when did you know? You talked about being committed 11 years old. Was there a few years before that? Like, when did it sort of get in your mind that, you know, you were destined for the NHL? Uh you know, it's, you know, they talk about natural. I was a natural from day one. Uh, my first year house league, um, they, I actually got kicked off the team. I think the first game I had 10 goals. So I was, you know, five years old playing with the eight-year-olds. And then when I was seven, they put me with the 10-year-olds. So I remember that, uh, you know, they tried moving me teams and putting me on the bottom team. And then we would beat the top team. So they essentially uh, kicked me out of house league. <laughs> and I ended up playing a couple of years up select and, uh, I think I had the family record for a couple of years, I think 10 goals in a game. And I think my brother beat me by one a couple of years down the line. So um, I, I remember, uh, and, I, and I try to tell the kids these days, like, you know, what made me a good player in minor hockey was, yes, I was big, I was fast, I was strong, uh, but I was a big team player. I could make the worst player on my team score a goal, or I went above and beyond to try to help the players that weren't as great. I try to make them better and feel part of the team. So to have that leadership skill, at a young age, I know it sounds like I'm tooting my own horn here, but I just remember that trying to make the weaker players feel a big, a big part of the team. So, you know, I go to my OHL draft year and, you know, everyone talked about all the goals I scored. I had 70 assists in 30 games. So I was going above and beyond to try to be a playmaker out there. So I think that's a, a skill and a, an art and, a, and a, a leadership skill that I think is lost wanting to go above and beyond for your fellow teammates. So I think that's what separated me from the, uh, from the pack uh, other than being, uh, five inches taller and 30 inches, uh, sorry, 30 pounds heavier than everybody else out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that was consistent from day one. You were a bigger, taller player from. Yeah. From, yeah. yeah. And it's funny. I, I connected with one of my select coaches um, uh, last year and um, you know, he actually had a DVD from uh, our Timmy type tournament where we played at the um, it was the Maple Leaf gardens uh, uh, where the Maple Leafs played. And uh, I think I had a hat trick in the game and we won four, three or something like that too. So um, again, it was one of those things where I just love the game so much. I wanted to perform at a high level, but I actually worked on the craft every single day. My brother and I, if we weren't on the ice, we were playing roller hockey, ball hockey, foot hockey, uh, ringette. We were doing it all because we, we love, we generally had a love for the game. Okay. And did you have a love for other sports growing up as well? I, I know, I know I've talked to you about your brother later, but he obviously played football too, but how about yourself? Uh, I was a multi-sport athlete. I played uh, rep soccer growing up. And uh, for me, I quit because I didn't like the practices and I didn't like standing out there in the heat. Uh, so I played rep soccer, but uh, I played volleyball as well. Um, and I also played in high school. I played high school basketball and uh, ran track and field. So, you know, here I was the guy at, uh, you know, doing shot put and running the hundred meter dash at uh, six foot two and 240 pounds <laughs> against some of the guys that were a lot leaner and sleeker out there. But uh, I think that was part of it too. Um, you know, we didn't do hockey 24 seven. We were, when the season was over, yeah, we do one spring tournament, but I was out there playing soccer. I was playing basketball with my friends. You know, we were throwing the slow pitch around as well, throwing baseballs around, trying to hit dingers. So we were, we were doing a lot of sports. And I think that helped mold me just being away from the rank and not being overtrained. 
Yeah, those are lost experiences. And um, kids pick up different types of uh, experiences, whether you're the star on those teams or not, and you're using other body parts. So I sort of long for those days to come back, <laughs> back again. So that's great to hear. And now let's also touch upon who are some future NHL stars you may have played with in your younger years. Uh, I'm looking now. Um, so it's funny. I played with uh, Brent Burns. So I played with Brent Burns. I think we were 11 years old. We played summer hockey together. So it's funny. My my summer hockey near the end, uh, my minor hockey career, we'd go to, uh, we'd have a travel tournament team uh, right before our OHL draft year. And I think on that team, it was myself, uh, Wojtek Wolski, <laughs> who played uh, multiple years in the NHL, Evan McGrath, who was a Detroit Red Wings pick as well, and uh, some other guys. But in my minor hockey year, I think my last year is myself, uh, Brett Burns, uh, Daniel Carcillo, um, and we had Jeff Platt, who played in the NHL as well. He's actually currently still playing in the KHL. And then we also had uh, Luciano Aquino, who uh, was a draft pick for the Islanders. So um, I, I think the key to that was... Um, no one thought Brent Burns was going to be at the NHL at that time. He was a tall, langley kid playing offense, defense, a kid from Barry. Uh, Carcillo was in his first year, triple A. Um, and Jeff Platt, uh, wasn't the biggest guy as well. So a lot of those players worked and did the hard route to the NHL, which was good. Uh, but it was great. Uh, we ended up losing, I think in the OHL cup final. Uh, but I have some fond memories playing with those guys. Yeah. So in a moment, I'm going to get into your junior career, but, um, you know, the, the common topic of experiences of racism is is uh, quite common for uh, Black and other players, uh, underrepresented groups. Um, how was that experience for you? Did, did you have some challenges that you had to get through as, as a young kid? Yeah, there's definitely some challenges. You know, I played in some uh, Detroit uh, tournaments where, you know, you have kids that use the N-word. But, you know, you have to look at it from my perspective. Growing up in a situation of, you know, astute poverty, for lack of better words, you know, I had bigger problems, right? You know, I always talk about and talking to parents, you know, it's great that you had this internal hunger to make it to the next level. And I said, yeah, the, the hunger, it was a literal hunger. I was literally hungry. <laughs> so when you have that mentality and you're 10, 11 years old and you have this goal, you know, I knew where I was going at a young age. And I knew a lot of those people, there was going to be detractors. And my dad used to tell me, you have to work twice as hard for half the opportunity. There's going to be people that are going to want to deny you. And so I was prepared from a young age. and it's tough to, to try to explain how do you explain that to a, a 10 year old, but I knew those lessons. So I knew what I was going to be expecting. I knew that racism was going to be coming, but I said, well, I'm going to be a millionaire in a couple of years here. So what are you really going to say? And okay, you have a problem with me. We're on the ice. If Are you going to fight? <laughs> Probably not. So it's tough because I have young kids and I have young kids that play hockey and I coach, um, you know, BIPOC players as well, they don't have that same resiliency. So my experience, <clears throat> excuse me, doesn't necessarily, um, you know, deflect it or make it less hard on some of the other kids. It, it is a big, big problem. And uh, it's it's shocking now that we have to deal with it in 2023. And, you know, I'm not shocked that people are still racist. I'm shocked that people think they can get away with it and not think that it's uh, 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 something that could come back to haunt you. So, um, yes, there was name calling. Uh, it was pathetic. It was, um, you know, any adjective that was negative to describe it. But for me, you know, I knew I was uh, an alpha male at a young age. So that's the best way to describe it. But, um, you know, for the kids now, it's it's very, very tough for them to go through it. And, you know, they have my 100% uh, support. And again, I remember the feeling, but also I remember where I was going and I was off to the bigger and better places. Yeah. And, and the, the better player you are, um, it does draw attention, unfortunately, 
um, hockey historically is people have used different names and things to try and get at people. So it's certainly. And the one thing I want to mention on that started to cut you off is, is, you know, I, I was sitting there and, you know, I always tell my story, which is, is part of who I am. And, you know, I think about it, you know, how bad I may have had it, but then you look at players like Mike Marson and Val James and what they had to go through where, you know, there's people on camera, you know, using the N word and bringing watermelons to the rink. So I'm thinking like, okay, I had it bad, but nothing compared to these guys. So that made me a little bit more motivated to say, Hey, yes, these guys paved the way for me. So I got to keep pushing like these guys because they had it 10 times worse. What Mike Marson's gone through. And again, I've connected with Val James over the years and uh, you know, Claude Vilgrain as well, where it was overt, overt racism, not covert, not systemic, over overt racism to their face, which was, I couldn't fathom having that on a daily basis. There are situations and few and far between, but for them to deal with that daily, I'm very, very motivated and uh, privileged to even be named in the same conversation as some of those guys in the past. Yeah, really, really well, uh, really good perspective there. Not only what people have faced in the experience of hockey, but just in society in general, in terms of what they, they face outside the rank and fans and those types of things. Um, where there's some, there's some memorable allies you, you can think back in terms of people that try to su support you through some of those challenging times, whether it was players, coaches. Yeah, or absolutely. Yes. Um, yeah. Kirk Brooks uh, used to have, he still has a program to this day. Uh, his son, Nathaniel works for the Arizona Coyotes as a skills coach now, but he used to have skills hockey where all the black players throughout uh, Ontario would come together for a week camp. And uh, I remember Kevin Weeks and Anson Carter coming to visit us. And uh, it's funny, one of the players that I coached with attended that camp and he got a signed mission stick uh, from Anson Carter. Uh, but, you know, even for Anson Carter, you know, when I was 18 years old, uh, my girlfriend, who's my wife now, um, lived in California. And I would spend my summers before the NHL training uh, with T.R. Goodman, who was a black trainer uh, in the NHL and he trained a lot of these NHL players. So here I was not even in the league at 18 years old training with Rob Blake and Chris Chelios and uh, Ray Liotta. And, you know, you got Hulk Hogan at the gym. So here I am this 18 year old kid from Canada, not even the league. And Anson Carter went above and beyond every single day to invite me to breakfast after, after our workout every single day. So here I am now quiet. Hey, do you want to come to breakfast? And, you know, I'd always be like, <clears throat> I don't have any money in my pocket. My wife's, uh, my girlfriend's going to college at the time. I got $10 for gas to get back across the city. And I'd always say, yeah, I'd love to come, but I don't have any money. He's like, don't worry about it. So he'd buy me breakfast every single day. And that was something that um, he didn't have to do. He could be like, here's a guy trying to get my job at the NHL in a couple of years. But he went above and beyond to uh, just feed me, which was great. And again, I always bring that story up whenever I see Anson. I guess the sense of ownership um, is very, uh, very influential and something you're trying to do now paying it forward because you know how much it meant to you. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, everyone talks about mentorship and it's, you know, just picking up the phone and calling and checking in on somebody. It's, you know, sending them a message on Instagram or sending a text, right? You don't have to, Hey, you have to do what I did and follow my pathway. It's just saying, Hey, if there's any situation that uh, you feel uncomfortable with, or you need someone to talk to, just pick up the phone and call. So that's, I think the best type of mentorship and friendship and allyship, I think amongst the black players in the game. So let's move up to uh, Kingston Frontenac. Can you walk us through that journey? Yeah, so I was uh, drafted, uh, I think it was in the 1999 draft, uh, 2000 draft, uh, seventh overall. Um, it was a great, great uh, experience. There was no drafts in person at the time. That was the draft, first year they did the draft online. So 
Um, I think I had to go to my coach's house at the time and use his computer. And I didn't even know how to refresh. And by the time I hit refresh, I think it was already at pick 20. So here I am now looking through the, oh, there's my name, number seven. And uh, I first thought Kingston, I didn't even know where it was on the map. I thought it was probably out west by London or Kitchener, but uh, it was two hours uh, east of my uh, city in Scarborough there. So it was great. Uh, and, and what I loved about Kingston was I got in there and uh, Lou Dickinson was there. who was a former top draft pick who was BIPOC as well. Took me under his wing, um, you know, immediately. You know, I wanted to look like him, dress like him. And he took care of me. And, uh, you know, I didn't really have to deal with too much hazing because, you know, I was his boy, for lack of better words. And uh, Larry Mavity uh, gave me an opportunity who was a junior hockey legend and put me on the first line right away. And I learned uh, you know, how to be a player in the OHL by making mistakes. And I was able to make mistakes. And uh, I finished my first year, I think, with 43 points. And I would think I was second on scoring, second in scoring, excuse me, on the team. And But I was just able to go there and be myself. I didn't have to worry about trying to assimilate or be somebody else or put it on. I was able to dress the way I wanted to, act the way I wanted to, because it was a welcoming uh, experience uh, from the from the team, the city, and the organization. So you can look back and many pros can look back at that list and not everyone makes it through from the first round There's to the NHL. There's going to be a higher probability and you probably say, okay, you've made this, this, uh, you've made it this far, this benchmark, check that off. And now your eyes are on what do you have to do to the next stage? Now I understand you vaulted up pretty quickly with that team. Like you were the captain, I think, believe in the second year. Yep. Yep. And what led to to you? Like, that's not a common occurrence to see someone be a captain in their second year with the OHL team. Well, it was, I think the team wasn't uh, wasn't doing very, very well in the standings and they sort of needed a, a direction. And again, I think it was after my first year that I was going to be an NHL prospect and they wanted to build that team around me. We had a couple draft picks that um, didn't show up uh, over the years as well, too. So they wanted a, a really good sense of direction. So for me to be named captain, I think was a great uh great, great accomplishment. But, um, you know, and we were talking about the NHL draft and, you know, that was part of the plan and part of the goal. And, and so being named captain, I think was a, a definitely a, a great accomplishment, but not surprising, but I was definitely excited for the, uh, for the honor. Yeah. And can you talk about how the team did in the years you there? Did you go deep in the playoffs or win any championships or? Uh... No, we did not. So again, Kingston at the time was sort of in a bit of a dip and I tell everybody, um, I think, I think throughout my four-year career, I think I maybe played on the line with maybe one guy ever drafted to the NHL. So we struggled mightily, uh, but I tell everybody it was great because it gave me that experience on not looking for help. I had to be the guy. So every single night I was going against Jason Spezza and Eric Stahl and, uh, you know, I had Matt Foy and Corey Locke in the East and Kyle Wellwood and these guys, and it's me. So I'm looking like, well, where is my Spezza and where is my, oh, I have to be this guy. So that was a challenge every single night. And I think that helped make me better. So I think that was exciting. And now that I think about it, I'm like, you have me at 17 years old trying to be the, <laughs> going against guys at 19, 20 and, you know, trying to, you know, they're asking me to fight and I got to put up points and do it all. But I think that helped prepare me becoming a pro and uh, becoming a top player, which uh, helped me realize my potential. Yeah. So another big accomplishment for OHL players is making it to get the uh, Canada junior national team. So can you talk about that process? Were you on regional teams before? Or how did you get on the radar for making that? And maybe tell us about your experience with the Canadian junior team. 
Well, uh, you know, Canada has a program of excellence where I think they identify the players first year. So I started off with uh, the under 17 program. So my first year I went there and we played, uh, it's almost like a regional tournament where there's some teams from the Europe, but it'd be Ontario versus British Columbia and Saskatchewan. So I think I had a pretty good tournament. I think I had six points or six goals thinking that I was, you know, doing really, really well. Then you see this person by the name of Alexander Oveshkin who had like 19 goals. I'm like, oh, okay. So I have something to work for. I'm not a superstar yet. If you have Oveshkin putting up 19 goals and in five, six games. And um, so one of the benefits of not playing uh, in the playoffs uh, in Kingston was uh, Canada would have an under 18 tournament. So for players that did not make the playoffs, they would draw throughout the Canadian Hockey League to go play in a European tournament uh, for the under-18 team. So I won two gold medals playing for under-18, and that gave me sort of the experience of what it was to play internationally and to travel. I've never left, I don't think, I don't want to say, I've never left North America. And here I am now playing in Germany and Slovakia and, and Russia. So that opened up my eyes saying, hey, you know what? I do have a lot of potential if I'm here. Uh, so I did, I did really well in those tournaments. Uh, I was bigger, faster, stronger. I think a lot of those players were afraid of me, so they just let me take the puck and go score. Uh, so that really helped me uh, get on the radar for the World Junior Team, where here I was. I scored a lot of goals at the under-17 level and both under-18 levels, uh, where they could have easily said, well, you know, we want to go with more skill. But I was a power forward. I was big. I was fast. I was strong. Uh, and I forechecked and played the game the right way. Um, and I had discipline, which was good. Um and I ended up making the world junior team the first year and we played in Finland. And uh, the, the one thing about that team was it was mostly the draft picks from the 2003 draft year. Um, and it's usually a 19 year old tournament, but we were a bunch of 18 year olds, hot shots playing that year. So uh, we didn't, we didn't know what losing was and we ended up losing in the finals against uh, the U S in the third period. I think it was a four, three loss, uh, but we really learned our lesson about humility and, uh, discipline and what it really takes to win. Uh, and then the next year, um, I think we had, I want to say 15 returning players and uh, it wasn't even close. I think we won the final six, one against uh, Russia. And uh, we were a team on a mission where every single game was five, one, six, one. I think the closest game was maybe four, two in the semis against the Czech Republic. But what was amazing there was you could sort of foreshadow the greatness of some of these players on that team. You had, Patrice Bergeron, you had Sidney Crosby, you had Ryan Getzlaff, Dion Phaneuf, Seabrook. So I think out of that team, there's going to be 10 Hall of Famers. I think there's 15 Stanley Cups, you know, thousands and thousands of games in the NHL. So to be a part of that, I think was my greatest accomplishment. And to this day, when I see any of those guys, uh, we have very, very fond memories of, of playing for Team Canada and wearing that flag at the junior level. Yeah, still have that bond, right? If you're enjoying Recognize and thinking about starting your own hockey card collection, I'd suggest you start with eBay. eBay is all about connecting communities and fueling passions. Because of its thriving card collector community, I was able to make my dream come true by collecting the rookie cards of the NHL's black and biracial players. Start your own collection at ebay.ca slash hockey cards. So have I got this right? You were drafted uh, first round, 25th overall. Can you maybe talk about that day again, the excitement leading up to that day and what you remember about the NHL draft? No, it was definitely a great experience. And, um, 
it was a family affair. And I think it was my mom's first time on a plane in about 20 years. So she had a lot of anxiety going down there. And uh, it's funny, you know, just the nervousness of the day. And I think she almost missed me getting drafted because she had to go for a cigarette break because you're just so nervous. So um, I used to tell her like, Hey, I'm going anywhere from, you know, 15 to 25. So please don't go. And she left, I think at pick 20 and, uh, but it, it was great um, because my agent at the time, Bobby Orr had myself and Eric Stahl, uh, Nathan Horton and a couple of players that were drafted fairly high. So to experience that as a group of friends uh, going down there to Nashville and, and having a great time down there with their families was definitely great. But uh, to hear my name called in the first round was a uh, whirlwind of emotions. And uh, you see me walking down, I think I actually shed a tear because all my hard work was starting to come to fruition and, and being recognized uh, as being one of the top players in the draft class was definitely great. And uh, being drafted to Florida was a tremendous honor. And, you know, I signed my contract, I think uh, 18 months later was definitely a great experience. And so I think we're going on the 20 year anniversary uh, of that. I'm feeling a little bit old now, but uh, I still remember that day like it was yesterday. Um, so who was the head coach of Florida when you started your season? Um, so I did not make the team. So the, so it's funny, the first year that, um, I went, um, to the Florida Panthers, I made the team out of training camp at 18. Uh, but they waited the last minute to do myself and Nathan Horton's contract. So Nathan Horton's contract got done at 12 and they had two hours to negotiate my contract. And I was sitting in the room and I think it was, uh, uh, Mike Keenan, who was the coach and GM at the time. So I'm sitting in a room, I'm on the phone, picking up the phone, talking to Bobby Orr and Mike Keenan would come in. Are you taking the deal? And I'd have to say, uh, no. And they slammed the door. So imagine that at 18, turning down all this money and all that. So I ended up not signing at the time and I had to go back to junior, but um, I think it was best. I had to, you know, round out my game a little bit more and, and learn what it was to, to have a little bit of money in my pocket as well too, and be a little bit more fiscally responsible. So going back to junior, I think helped, but uh, you know, it was a little bit disappointing not being able to play in the NHL at that time. And then I think the next year was the lockout. So it was a crazy time, but I wouldn't change it for the world. So that had something to do with the way the contracts were changing. I remember hearing a story about uh, you seeing sort of a, a softer side of Mike King Keenan, because many people only see him as sort of the, the brash person. So can you elaborate a little bit? Yeah, he was nice to me. You know, yeah, he was nice to me and everyone talks about him being iron Mike and, and being hard on, but he was nice to me. And uh, it's funny, you know, he was, you know, slamming the door, obviously upset that I wasn't taking the deal, but when um, I was actually sent back down to junior, I was very visibly upset. He came and gave me a hug and said, don't worry about it, son. You'll be back soon. So here it is. I'm hearing all these stories. I'm nervous about my Keenan. He actually came, shook my hand, gave me a hug and told me he was going to be okay. So when I hear the negative stories, I'm like, well, he was nice to me. So I always hold him in the highest regard. Were there any <laughs> moments with Mike that you want to highlight where he he was was constructive with his feedback? Using that other way in terms of he had to point out. Some well, things? I got one story. Uh, I, I think it was my first exhibition game. Um, I was in Colorado and um, Mike runs the forward and the D. So I ended up scoring a goal. And um, it's my first, you know, goal. It's obviously an exhibition game. So, but I'm looking at it on the jumbotron. So here I am watching the replay of the jumbotron, and Mike's at the defensive side of the bench yelling at me to get on the ice. But I didn't hear it because I'm obviously fascinated what's going on. So he goes and he finds a puck on the bench and he says, "Hey kid, play with this for the rest of the period. You're so worried about goals. Here's your puck. Play with it." And he benched me for the rest of the period. So 
it, that taught me a lesson on, Hey, I got to be engaged and always be about my, my wits and not uh, all about my wits and, and pay attention on the bench. It was a, it was a quick lesson and only cost me a period of play, which was good. Oh, good. <laughs> so um, if I could circle back to the mentorship role you played with your uh, younger brother, could you elaborate on what happened with Kingston? I understand that he was a walk on, but you, you had a lot to do with your brother trying out for Kingston and then later on playing the NHL and having a really lengthy career. So, yeah, well, my brother, he's, he played almost 700 games and um, you know, he actually quit his OHL draft year where um, you know, a lot of the families went above and beyond financially to take care of myself, to get to the ranks, but uh, he didn't really have that. Uh, so he had to pay his own way to hockey and he had to take the bus. And, you know, by the time he was 15 years old, excuse me, he just decided, hey, it's too much of a burden on the family financially, so he's just going to quit. He didn't really want to take the bus anymore. It was too expensive. So he quit, and you know, he was in high school, and he decided, hey, you know what? I'm just going to play football. So he was actually a, a world-class football player where you know, he was possibly going to get a scholarship or play in the CFL because he was a big boy at six two and a half, and he was, I think, officially 285 pounds, maybe a little bit bigger, but he was very, very fast. He was like a world-class sprinter as well. He ran really, really fast. I think it was like a four five or a four six at 285. So he had a lot of prospects doing that. But uh, the one year we didn't make the playoffs, which was obviously a lot of times in Kingston, I came back a little bit early and he would just play school hockey for fun. So I went one day just to show my support and I'm sitting there and I'm seeing him. I'm like, this guy's moving around at this weight, this great on the ice. And he's got amazing hands. I'm like, dude, you, you got to play hockey, man. He's like, well, what are you talking about? Playing? I'm like, well, if you train, you know, I'll get you a tryout in, in Kingston. So I had no idea how I was going to do it, but I just decided, hey, you know what? I got to get this guy in shape. So I'd always go for my daily runs and I would bring him with me. And at first he couldn't keep up because he was so heavy. So he'd ride his bike. Uh, then a couple of weeks later, he'd be able to now switch to rollerblades. And then after about six weeks, here he is running. And by the end of the summer, he ended up passing me in some of these runs. So to see him now transform his body and his mind and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to decide to be a, a, a hockey player now. That was, that's, that's the story, right? They need to write a movie on that. So I ended up calling Larry Mavity, who was the GM at the time and say, Hey, you know, I have a brother. Uh, he didn't get drafted, but he is a player. And uh, the rest was history. He walked on as a, as a, as a fighter. You <laughs> uh, only played a couple of games, I think in the first 20 games, he was in and out of the lineup, but um, he really got his opportunity once I went away to World Juniors and Team Canada, and they put him in my position and ended up scoring a bunch of goals. He finished with 18 or 19 goals as a rookie walk-on. So uh, to see him do that, the rest was history, him being a first-rounder and going on to play almost 700 games, uh, an amazing accomplishment. And, and it's those stories, again, like sound like just a phenomenal athlete that was given the opportunity to play hockey. And, and what a difference. He ends up playing like a lengthy NHL career just from being given the opportunity and the support and mentorship from people like yourself. So. I love hearing that. Can you tell us about your memory of your first official NHL game? Uh, well, my first year pro, um, you know, I had a really good training camp. I think I was 21 years old. And um, I think I had four or five goals in preseason. But again, it was an older team. So I got sent down to the minors. I was very, very disappointed. And, you know, you want to make the NHL as quick as possible. But uh, so I sent down to Rochester and had a really, really good start there. And um, I think it was the end of... October. So I think about 10 games in the season, they called me up. So um, I got called into the office in the American league saying, you're getting called up to the NHL. And I was like, are you serious? He's like, yeah. So I flew in and 
Uh, we were playing against the New Jersey Devils, and I think I had an assist my first game. But, uh, you know, everyone talks about the rookie lap where they make the rookie. Um, everyone stays behind. The rookie goes out by himself. So um, I botched that because I thought they were trying to prank me and put something on my skate. So I wouldn't go. I was too afraid to go out by myself. I don't know if they were going to pour water over my head. So eventually they're like, let's just all go. So we all went together. So I botched my rookie lap. But, uh, no, it was it was great, um, you know, playing with, you know, I think um, – I started off playing the second line with uh, Gary Roberts and Steve Weiss and Joe Neuendijk was on the team. And I think uh, we had uh, in net was like Ed Belfort. So to go from, you know, the Mer- from junior hockey to the American league. And then within uh, a month of the season playing in the NHL was definitely great. And uh, I just had to assist my first game. And then the second game uh, we were playing against Washington and scoring on the power play. So it was great having two points in my first couple of games and, uh, the unfortunate part about that was I actually got hurt my 10th game of the season where I dislocated my wrist and I was injured for the year, but uh, I was off to a hot start. I was telling, I was going to maybe be in the running for rookie of the year. That's what I tell everybody when they ask. <laughs> <laughs> so, so as you move along with parts of your career, maybe you can just share with us how many seasons you end up playing and are there any particular moments that you want to highlight as we're sort of stand out as you that um, were real highlights in your career that are memorable? Yeah, so I played 10 years professionally and six were in the NHL. Um, I think my best season was probably with the Atlanta Thrashers where I left the Florida organization and I ended up signing with the Atlanta Thrashers. And, uh, you know, I had a really, really great coach in Craig Ramsey who said, hey, regardless of the adversity that you went through in your career, I want you to come in and just worry about playing and being the best version of yourself. You don't have to worry about fighting. Just go out there and play. Um, So to be in Atlanta with, uh, you know, we had four other black players on the team. It was great. And being in a black city and and just seeing, you know, black wealth and, and being in, in such an amazing city where away from the rink, you know, there were so many great things to do, so much uh, parks to go to, restaurants, and and be a center point uh, and a focus of the team and the organization was great. Uh, so that was my best season. I think I had 14 goals and uh, just under 40 points. Uh, but just being in, in in that city and making an impact on, on growing the game. And we talk about uh, diversity and equity. And, you know, we were doing that in 2012, 2013, almost 10, you know, six, seven years before, you know, they were really making a serious push on growing the game. So to be a part of that was definitely great. And one to, uh, till this day, I really keep in touch with a lot of the players and Nigel Dawes and Dustin Bufflin, Johnny Oduya and, you know, there were some great, great players, Evander Kane on that team too. So we didn't make the playoffs that year, but being in that city and being part of something bigger than just the game of hockey is is something that I remember to this day. So at that point in time, speaking about diversity, do you recall the impact your players? You mentioned there's four of you playing in Atlanta, um, which had a large African-American population. Do you, do you remember the spinoffs of that and kids looking up to you or any fans that you, did you, was there much of an impact back then? No, it's it's tough. And you really, really reflect after the fact and back then. And that's what we talk about when we talk about growing the game. Um, yeah, you recognize it, but you want to be the you want it to be the norm. And that's what it was. We just happened to be five black guys that played in the NHL. So now it's a monumental thing that this is 10 years ago and it happened. Uh, but for us, it was a regular Tuesday. And uh, it's funny. They brought in CNN. uh <laughs> One year, I'll tell this story. And, and during Black History Month and. You know, they interviewed us all and they asked uh, Dustin Bufflin, so what what did you learn about the Martin Luther King in school? He said, well, I didn't go to school. 
Then they asked uh, Johnny Oduya, so what did you learn about Martin Luther King? He's like, well, I'm from Sweden. <laughs> so I did so they asked yeah. us all and I, you know, I, you know, I did a little bit of history in school. So I was the only one I think able to string together something that was usable uh, for the broadcast. But uh, you know, I, I wish I can go back to that moment and really notice the, you know, how big of a, a moment it was and, and, and really take advantage of that. And I think the organization could have did a, a better job of marketing it, but at the same time, you want it to become the norm where it's something, you know, yeah, you recognize it, but you don't Normalized. have to talk about it every single day. And, uh, you know, for us, you know, you know, we were, we're talking about all the first uh, black broadcasts in the U.S. And it's like, you know, my, myself, Jamal Mayers and David Amber were on TV, you know, you know, twice a week together. <laughs> so again, it, it's That's great right. to recognize it. But for us, the goal is just to have it be a regular thing. Norm, right. So. <laughs> yeah. You finish off your career in Europe, I believe, Russia, Switzerland, later in your career, then the Quebec Senior League. So maybe just touch on some of those experiences. Yeah. So again, as a hockey player, you know, you're not just an NHL player and the occupation takes you uh, everywhere. And again, I think what really helped was me playing with team Canada, getting that experience and not being afraid to move to, uh, to Europe. Right. Again, you, you hear the stories of a young black man living in Europe, but uh, I was really accustomed to it and felt welcomed uh, being in some of these countries. And uh, you know, Russia is a different, uh, a different universe and a different planet to put it lightly where you know, you're walking to the arena and, you know, you're seeing a guy walking a bear and you see a camel and then you see, uh, you know, some vagrants just randomly fighting. And so it was a different world. Uh, there's no middle class. Everyone's either really, really rich or really, really poor. But uh, to, to really learn a different culture is, is, is great. So I'll chalk it up to as an experience. Uh, it was very, very difficult, but I have an appreciation now for some of the Russian players that have to come here and deal with the language barrier and deal with a new a new city and just new food and, you know, I remember doing video and in, in they're talking in Russian and I don't even know what team they're talking about, which team is our team, what's power play, what's penalty kill. So uh, I grew an appreciation for that. And uh, I went from Russia and I finished off in uh, Switzerland. So I urge any players that might be listening to this, the, the, the life of Switzerland is an easy life. It, it's great. It's really expensive living there, but just the culture and the people that live there, it's, it's, it's amazing. And then the infrastructure and the buildings and, uh, the, 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 the train, the trains, you know, you, I can, I, by within six weeks, I knew how to take a train across the country. So, uh, it, it was a great uh, experience. And it's funny, uh, on my team in Switzerland, Freeborg, uh, we had three black players on the team. We had two other players on the team and one was actually a, a Swiss national. So it's great that you travel around the world and, you know, you look different and you're playing with players in Europe uh, that look like you, that was definitely great. Uh, so, um, you know, Europe's not necessarily a great experience, but I took advantage of the culture part of it. And it definitely helps me today. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing experience. Um, now, could you also um, touch on what it's like to transition when your hockey career ends? Any pro athlete's got to be difficult. And you're a busy person now. And um, you're an analyst, uh, sportscaster with Sportsnet. You uh, lead Stuart Hockey. Uh, so, but before those things, maybe just talk about your transition into what you're doing now. Well, it's, it's very, very tough for everybody, right? Where you're not sure what to do. And, and a lot of people identify as, as a hockey player and that's who you are. Right. So it took me, I think two years to realize like, Hey, yeah, hockey is, is great. It was a big part of my life, but it's not necessarily just, it's not uh, who I am. It's what I did. So it took a couple of years and a couple of hard years where, Hey, yeah, you're not, uh, you have to adjust your lifestyle because you're not making the same amount of money and 
you know, you got to figure out what you're going to do. But for me, I just followed the passion. I followed the passion and said, hey, well, I want to stay in hockey. Um, if I just get on the ice and start working with some kids, the business side will follow. And, um, you know, I had an ex-teammate of mine from junior hockey that had his own hockey school. And it started out with me coming out a couple days a week. Uh, so I was running the business about eight months later. Um, so um, I sort of fell out of love with the game because, again, you didn't your career doesn't end the way you want it. But just me being back on the ice with these young kids and seeing them getting better and them looking up to you, I fell in love with the game. I remember some practices me getting off early as a player. You know, I was on the ice for hours and hours and hours. I one day did nine hours in a day. And I'm like, it felt like one. So I really fell in love with the game and you know, the business started taking care of itself where I had a really, really successful hockey school, uh, 30 kids on the ice. Uh, but uh, the one area that I realized was um, the game was really, really expensive. And, you know, my wife did our books for the hockey school and there'd be 30 kids, but she's like, well, where's all the money? And I said, well, you know, there's 30 kids, maybe 10 paid full price and the other 10 paid half. And then the other 10 didn't pay anything because they couldn't afford it. So we had to figure out a way how to supplement those costs and, and really now help some of these kids and go above and beyond. And that's where hockey quality came. So maybe you can tell the listeners a little bit more about um, Stuart hockey and hockey equality. Um, I, I've learned uh, recently about the work that you're doing and really proud to try to support that, that cause I, I strongly believe in the opportunities for kids to play the sports and the stories you've told us already in this podcast again two great examples you and your brother um with there were barriers there were barriers let's be honest but um yeah. but let's break down barriers so so more kids can play the game so yeah well everything comes full circle right and we, we talked about myself with families going above and beyond and you know i was the player now driving to the rink and having to pick kids up that were you know walking from the subway and I had to be the, the guy now taking kids out to lunch after and dinners after. So what really, you know, hit the corner for me and turned uh, the page was uh, during the pandemic, right? So the rinks were opening, uh, you know, sporadically and the ice prices just happened to go up. Uh, so what happened was you weren't allowed as many kids on the ice uh, and the ice prices went up. So I wasn't able to generally, you know, literally afford to be able to be running skates because I'd be losing money. I'd be out there and, you know, two kids paying for free and just the ice prices are too expensive. So I had to figure out a way, well, how can we supplement these kids where the ice is paid for, the instructors are getting paid their money and not really dig into your bottom line. So that's where we came up with hockey quality. So what I ended up doing was, hey, you know what? We're going to recognize these kids that I've been on the ice with and training and developing into top players the last five years. So we're going to start a mentorship series. So I used my contacts at Sportsnet and said, hey, you know, would you mind coming out and just talking to these kids and just give them some expertise. And, uh, you know, we had uh, people from sports that come and talk to them how to do an interview and how to sit and how to breathe. And, you know, we had writers to come out and talk to them about writing and journaling and just giving them all these tools. And we documented it and we actually presented it to the NHL and saying, Hey, here's the future of hockey. Everyone talks about growing the game and the barriers, what needs to be done. We're identifying these kids. We're putting our money where our mouth is. This is 10 kids. We now want to do this for 100 kids. And I think it's great to say that I think we're at 600 kids on boarded. And our first year from our mentorship series, we had 10 kids drafted to the OHL. Four are currently in the OHL right now. And these weren't kids that we just said, hey, uh, we're doing this thing. Can you come support? It's kids that we knew for the last five, six years that were with Stewart Hockey or had a friend that was at Stewart Hockey. So it's great to see that. And um, 
It's great that we're now full partners with the NHL, the NHLPA, uh, and the GTHL now, where they're providing a lot of our funding now. So uh, we offer now, we talk about the financial barriers. You know, all our grassroots programming is free. You can get on the ice and, and we provide equipment and we have elite training. So you can be a player now going into the OHL and train for $20. You can come to a camp now for instead of $150 a day, $50 a day, but now you get lunch, you get mentorship, you get on ice. You can go in the gym with Matt Nickel, who's training Andrew Wiggins and Andre DeGrasse and be rubbing shoulders with those guys. So it's just showing these kids the pathway in that ladder system and doing it now where um, the only barrier is going to be their hard work. You, you, if you can afford the 20 bucks, that's great. If you can't, well, we'll figure out a way to supplement that too. Such an impactful um, initiative and uh, program. And it's also very inclusive, is it not? Like um, your, 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 um, recruitment of students is um, women, uh, young ladies, BIPOC, very inclusive, is it not? Yes. Yeah, so, and we use the term uh, equity deserving, right? Because there's families that, um, you know, uh, are Caucasian and they could come from a single parent home or they're in college, right? Hockey is very expensive, right? So uh, we use the term uh, equity deserving. And, you know, I think our philosophy is there's other groups that want to use a speedboat with one pocket of people where we're trying to take a cruise ship with everybody. And I, I think it's, it's great because, um, you know, everyone sees our logo and it can mean whatever you want it to mean, uh, but just knows that you're welcome. You can come in and, and get on ice training, get mentorship. It's almost a, a hockey hub where you're going to be welcomed with open arms and whatever you need and whatever support system you need, we're here to help. And is that in the GTA? The, uh, where the kids. Yeah, we're in uh, So we're actually, we're all over Canada. We're Canada wide. And again, we uh, do collaborations and partnerships where we uh, have a collaboration with Apna hockey who uh, caters to the South Asian community in the Calgary area. Um, you know, we've done programs with uh, the three Nolans uh, who go to uh, indigenous outreach to, you know, remote pockets of the country and, and they're doing amazing work as well too. And, you know, we have Ben Johnson that comes out and trains some of the kids as well, Matt Nichols. So we have a lot of collaborations and, and partnerships in our outreaches uh, uh, Canada wide, but an extension of that is my brother. My brother uh, owns Minnesota hockey camps in Minnesota where we send kids out there and, you know, he has a junior team. So we're just trying to create this uh, new hockey ecosystem where it's welcoming for everybody. Yeah, I just, um, just really like the whole vision and setup of how the inclusive nature and, and how you are uh, developing players at, at every level. And I remember a few decades ago, it, it sort of started the expansion of basketball and soccer in many ways. And as the can the country has changed demographics, we hear of so many kids going to the States on scholarships for those two sports. I know hockey's different. I've often just thought of what you're doing is you're really kind of bridging that gap and who knows where students players may go again. They may just be recreational players. They may make the step to OHL. They may get a U.S. scholarship or package in Canada, but, but there's, there's really important those developmental years to be able to provide access to students at such a young age. So I just, I just love everything that you're doing. It's, it's a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So maybe uh, I'll just touch on your experiences again, because you're a busy guy. You can talk about your experience with Sportsnet and the impact that you're having there. And, and uh, I'm sure you're loving the role that you, you have with them. Well, yeah, it's, it's great. And um, you know, we, we talk about the sport shifting and uh, you know, we talk about the demographics and I think in the last three, four years, you know, you're seeing, you know, especially even on the TV side, you know, you're seeing myself and Anson Carter and Kevin Weeks has been doing it for years, Bryce Salvador and JT Brown. So uh, we're really getting those opportunities and we tell everybody like 
they didn't just put a suit on me and throw me on TV. They trained, they identified me, they trained and developed me and, uh, you know, really invested a lot of money to, you know, make sure that I was successful. So that's what it's about. They're not just checking a box. They're, they're actually developing their talents and identifying, which is great. And, you know, it started off with me just sending out tweets and, uh, then I was doing a radio program and they asked me if I wanted to do TV. And I said, well, yeah, absolutely. And, um, I got actually, I think about during the NHL bubble, I think it was 2020, um, I got probably about two years of experience in two months where I was doing three games a day, some days, uh, five days a week for two months. So I did, I think about 45 broadcasts <laughs> and here I am now I'll sit next to Ron McLean and David Amber. So I was very, very nervous and I refused to go back and look at the tape because yeah, I did some training, but, uh, with media, you, you only really improve with reps. So I got the repetitions, I got the work, but, uh, what I like about that is it's not like normal TV business. There's no competition. Everyone's there to help each other. It's like a hockey team. Everyone's there to see everyone be great. And Ron McLean and David Amber and Elliot Freeman, they've been amazing and just helping me uh, get better and learn the business. So I wasn't sure if it was for me, but it's turned out to be a second career. Uh, but what made it great was the people that are involved. And we talk about, uh, you know, the hockey culture and, and, you know, there's a lot of negative stories, but you know, this, this is, it, it's great. It's great to be a part of that. And, you know, I, I, any chance I have to mention that and what's going on in sports, it's definitely a family and I'm happy to be a part of it. Yeah. And you can just, you can just tell um, at this stage in the career, what, how much more you have to look forward to in terms of the, uh, that role. So that's really exciting to, to see. And um, getting back to the whole um, explanation you gave about um, hockey equality, what do you think needs to change and, and, and what is changing in terms of having more racial minority and equity serving groups, um, deserving groups get to that? Well, get to play hockey first and foremost, and then competitive hockey and NHL. Like, yeah. Can you sum up what you think needs to change? Well, it's, it's, it's funny. And, and, you know, the, the NHL is, you know, it's obviously a business uh, and they obviously want to grow the game, but the, the reality of the situation is, is, in Canada specifically, which is one of the main, you know, business contributors to the National Hockey League, uh, the, the population is not sustaining itself at a normal rate. So the reality of the situation is they have to now bring in new immigration to support the population. And if you don't get them involved in the game of hockey and have them now be uh, consumers, players and being involved in all facets, the game's naturally going to die. Whether that's 15 years, 20, 30, 50 years, 80 years down the line, that's a fact. Uh, and you know, it's, it's funny that they mentioned that because I'm on the ice, you know, every Tuesday night and I'm in Markham and every practice, there's a family, a young family, immigrant family that comes and watches my team. Cause I have 13 equity deserving kids. They they're very, very small. They look like they're six or seven years old, but they're 10 years old and they're just flying up and down the ice and twisting and turning and having fun. And the families are looking and they're like, I want this for my child, but I don't even know where to go. Like there's no signage. I can't even read English. Some of the families and they, and I almost, it breaks my heart because I want to get off the ice and give them information and give them a card and all. So just the access of even how do you figure out how to get on the ice and involved with the game uh, and getting equipment, right? We have families that show up with, you know, some of them have a box with uh, one skate. And <laughs> so we want to get the equipment in hands, get them on the ice. And that's how it was. My dad immigrated from, um, Jamaica knew nothing about hockey, 
but he knew once I got on that ice and fell in love with the game, he was going to figure out a way to figure out the finances or putting me in a situation where I can succeed. So how can we now get these kids on the ice, get them equipped and get them proper training, uh, but just have that accessibility and saying, Hey, you're welcome. You're welcome to the arena, having friendly faces around the arena to go above and beyond and, and helping them find teams. So it's a big, big task. Uh, and there's a lot of companies that are going above and beyond, but you need more. So I tell everybody if there's, um, you know, a hockey equality in Toronto and one in Brampton or one in Montreal, that's how you do it. So we're trying to set the blueprint on how to do it in Toronto, which is the most expensive and biggest market. But uh, this is not uh, something we're trying to do in the next two years. This is generational work and we're just getting started now. But, uh, you know, it's great to see now um, families where they weren't even sure they wanted to play hockey two years ago seeing the kid now thriving and flourishing and the confidence and them walking into the arenas and how excited they are to, to be on the ice. Um, I tell everybody, I was a hockey equality kid and that was the start just getting them on the ice. And that's what we're trying to do. Sticks and hands and skates on the ice. And uh, we're, we're well on our way to doing that. Yeah. It's so true that generational work, because even the players that you are developing, they themselves will become parents someday. And, and it's so true about the work has to be so intentional and targeted to be able to grow and expand, but all it takes is really just experience of beyond that ice. Like you were at three, four years old and, and who knows what could happen. Right. So For just sure. open up those doors. Absolutely. So could I ask you, uh, wrapping up, what advice would you give to a young hockey player today? Uh, my advice would be, it's, I know it sounds generic, but just have fun, just have fun and know that the game is for you. And whether or not you make the NHL, that's that's not the goal, right? This game now is growing and they're going above and beyond to make it more accessible and diverse and inclusive where, you know what, you could be the next referee. You could be the next head coach. You could be the next Mike Greer, who's a GM. And it's funny now, you're looking at uh, the Ottawa Senators are for sale. There's BIPOC groups that are trying to get ownership. So uh, the game is growing. Have fun, connect with the right people, uh, but just know that, there's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be adversity, but do not quit because if an immigrant family from Jamaica uh, can have two sons make it to the National Hockey League with little to no means and no silver spoon uh, in their mouth, uh, you can actually make something yourself as well, too. And uh, there's going to be help and there's support out there. And don't be afraid to ask for help as well. Well, thank you, Anthony. You know, your story is so inspiring. Uh, I'm going to have to stop by to see hockey equality. I'm, I'm not too far away from you. So at some point in time, I'd like to sort of see an action and, and just, uh, just keep trying to support the work you're doing. So I think it's incredible. No, perfect. Thank you very much. And keep doing what you're doing. You're doing amazing work as well in the community. And it, it's great. And it's great that you're highlighting some of the past people that uh, may have been forgotten, but you're bringing them back and it's exciting to see them. And it's, it's, uh, it's amazing what you're doing. Keep it up. We're proud to be working with Hockey Equality. Hockey Equality is on a mission to create diversity at all levels of the game of hockey. By lowering financial barriers for BIPOC, female, and other equity-deserving youth hockey players. If you've been moved by the stories shared on this podcast and want to help make hockey accessible to all, check out HockeyEquality.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to share this story with your kids, then check out My Hockey Hero. It's shorter and suitable for the whole family. You can click the link in the show notes or find it wherever you get your podcasts.
This has been a Podstarter production. production.